Hello and welcome back to another LifeWords Q&A with David Ray, handling what are at times a couple of pretty curly questions this week in our Q&A. Yeah, thanks Dwayne. We'll do our best. Remember, the idea is not to simply give uh, neat and easy answers, but to encourage some thinking about the issues. Life's so rarely black and white. Absolutely. We'll be looking at the temptations of Jesus, the tricky decision to change churches, and first the vexing question of euthanasia. But before we do any of that, if you have a question you'd like to ask David, then you can send us a message at lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. All right, let's leap straight into the deep end of the pool, David. Why do Christians oppose euthanasia when it seems to all be about helping people not suffer so much useless pain? Yeah, well, the first thing to say, Dwayne, is that not all Christians oppose euthanasia. Let's just say that there are some who don't oppose it. Um, and look, it, it's like one of these classic questions where you you can debate it in a radio studio or in a lecture room and you can offer the pros and cons, but when it comes to a real life situation, oh boy, it's tricky. So with all these sorts of issues, yes, you can talk logically about a whole lot of things, but at the same time, when the emotions get involved, when someone you love is dying, yeah. very, very, very different. Now, um, first of all, having said that some Christians don't oppose it, I think it's fair to say that most Christians do tend to be at least very wary of um, euthanasia. You see, while we want to alleviate suffering, and this is how the question's being phrased, why don't Christians want to alleviate suffering? Well, we do want to alleviate suffering. But if you alleviate suffering in such a way that it opens the door to some unintended consequences, then there's a problem. So in other words, euthanasia is not just simply about alleviating unfair pain and suffering, mm. um, but there's something more to it. You see, see um, uh, what are the unintended consequences? Well, some people will give up out of despair rather than being helped. In other words, they'll die prematurely. Um, and then there is this tendency that some people think it can come of, of getting rid of seemingly useless people. Maybe it's part of a wider socioeconomic agenda that we, yeah. we, we our health budget's limited. Uh, some people have passed their use by date, so let's um, um, give the needle or the drug or whatever it is and so on. Uh, there's some people who talk about pressure by relatives to have someone to die so that they can perhaps get their hands on the money or something, I don't know. Or putting too much responsibility on medicos. Who who makes a decision? So, so it, Now, none of those things is an argument for or against euthanasia, yeah. but it does say that it's not just a matter of, oh, let's put someone out of their misery because it does open uh, the door to wider issues. It, it seems sometimes, David, in this conversation and others like it, that when we talk about the opening of doors, we're having to find a way also to legislate against the wrong people marching through them. That's right, exactly. This is true. I, I mean, yes, you open the door, as it were, to alleviate pain and yeah. so on. That's very good. But who else, as you say, is going to walk through the door? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you and I might say, yes, we would never, ever make an irresponsible decision. But hey, um, the old slippery slope argument, once you get, get on that slope, well, um, what's to stop you plummeting all the way down? But having just said that, I, I'd be a little bit cautious about the slippery slope thing. Um, uh, look, in the medical profession, it happens all the time that death is, as it were, hastened, yeah. or death is at least not opposed. Uh, we all know that there's something of a difference between what we might call passive euthanasia and active euthanasia. Many, many medical people quite responsibly say, we will not intervene. We will allow this person to die. Now, no one's really describing that as euthanasia, but we have to admit it's a fine line because the, the ultimate aim of the exercise for a Christian, as far as I'm concerned, is not that we must keep people alive at all costs. Mm. Uh, that's not quite the case. There is a time to live and a time to die. 
So what's the difference between allowing somebody to pass and actually hastening relative to what the Bible says about the taking of a life? Well, you see, in the Bible times, I mean, many of these people who we're talking about here would have died anyway. Uh, because we have the means now, the technology, the medication to keep people alive for longer. And so when a doctor, as it were, declines to use the technology and the medication that might actually be available, I don't know whether they're actually breaching what the Bible says in terms of its principle of life or death, because the Bible is saying there is a time to live and a time to die. You must not actively take a person's life. But now we've got the technology and the medication to keep people alive longer. We have to ask ourselves, is that is that really what God wants that mm. we live as we squeeze every little bit of life um, out, out of a person, even though they're lying rather helpless and comatose on a hospital bed? Almost a victim to our capacity to uh, to hold breath within a person, if exactly. if perhaps to force it into a exactly. Person. We've got this what they call technological heresy now, where where since we've got the technology, we must use it, yeah. and since I can keep that person alive, I must keep that person alive. Now, I as a Christian would would query that because again, there is a time to live and a time to to die and I think there's a world of difference between a doctor saying look we, we will not intervene here in this person this person is going to die what we might call a natural death mm. there's a world of difference between that and a doctor saying well well we've really got to um, uh, really good we re- really got to as it were um, kill this person let's give them an injection or so on uh, it, it's, it's a fine line but most of the people working in the medico ethical area uh, are aware of that line and I think are sensitive to it David you've been a partner in many people's spiritual walks. Can I ask what it is you offer as advice to somebody who comes to you and says, I'm in this place, my loved one is slipping away from me. Where is the line that you help people find? I would certainly always be arguing that, uh, without trying to impose my decision on them, to say, allow the person to die. On the basis there is a time to live and a time to die. Sometimes we want to preserve a person's life purely for our comfort. We want to have that person around uh, and so on. I think think there is a time to die and I think there is a time to say to someone, uh, release that person. Because some people, in my experience, uh, are in a sense waiting to die and are ready to die. uh, And in Christian sense, go to be with the Lord. But all the relatives and friends are around clamouring for them to stay alive and almost we've got to give permission for people to die. Um, And yet at the same time, there are many, many circumstances where, of course, that's not appropriate, where we are praying for a healing miracle, where we are calling in the doctors and many medical experts and saying, saying, particularly with a younger person, can we keep this person going? But there comes a time when I think we have to say, uh, look, it's time to not give up. It's time to simply say, okay, as the Bible says, we live a certain lifespan. We accept death as a part of life. There's so much more we could say about this subject, and we will do so in future podcasts. You might have your own insights into the conversation we've started on euthanasia. You can share those and perhaps have follow-up questions answered as well at lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. That's our email address, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. To our next question, David, the Bible says that Jesus uh, was tempted and tested in every way like us. But how is that possible? He's Jesus. Well, it's not possible, is it? Um, Jesus uh, never had to um, suffer the stresses of marriage 
or parenting. Mm. Um, he never had to endure old age or dementia. He was never concerned, or not concerned, but he never actually directly experienced institutional child abuse and so on and so on and so on. So he can't possibly literally have experienced all we experienced. He, he can't experience what it's like to be a female, yeah. for example, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I think what um, the book of Hebrews, I think is, this is a quote from, um, it's talking more generally. You see, he would have experienced the general sort of temptation we have. You see, all these issues that I've raised uh, are really subspecies of a more general sort of temptation and testing. Are we going to be true to God or are we not going to be true to God? Are we going to do it God's way or not? Are we going to be dependent on God or not? In marriage, in uh, parenting, in my workplace, in my old age, in my sickness, in my health, that's the general temptation I've got. That's the general choice I've got. Do I follow God or do I not? And I think what the Bible is saying is Jesus was tempted very much to either be true to God or untrue to God. And so therefore he can understand the essential nature of our challenge rather than simply us having to say, well, he must know what it's like to, uh, you know, um, be married or mm. be old age, which obviously he didn't know what it was like. Mm. Life's about looking at horizons, whether they be, what are the near effects of this temptation? In other words, can I receive some sort of immediate gratification? Is it your impression that Jesus, when he was on earth, had a capacity to look past those immediate horizons and think more eternally? Was was he, in, in, in your thinking, blessed with a way of seeing further down the track that perhaps we are as mere mortals? Oh, yes, sir. I, I think he certainly was. That comes out in these uh, temptations in the wilderness because Satan there was was not trying to tempt him to be a... To, to say, don't be the Messiah, what Satan was saying was, be a different sort of Messiah. Turn stones into bread. In other words, be a materialistic Messiah. Um, uh, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Be a political Messiah. Um, throw yourself off the temple. Be a miracle-working Messiah. In other words, he was saying, Jesus, I'll let you be the Messiah, but you be my sort of tame Messiah. Wow. Jesus was able to see beyond that, as you say, to a wider horizon and say, ah, 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 it might sound very, very reasonable, Satan, but I'm not going to fall for that. Now, here is where I think he can sympathise with us because every temptation that comes to us, Dwayne, comes to us in a fairly subtle form. Satan will very rarely tempt you or me to do something evil. He doesn't say to you, Dwayne, do something absolutely terrible and wicked and evil. Horrid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. We would say, oh, I'm not a terrible, wicked, evil, and horrible person. I work for Hope 103 too. <laughs> I can't possibly be that sort of person. Uh, and I can say, I'm a clergyman. I can't possibly be that sort of person. But Satan will always tempt us more subtly. He will say, as he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, is it really wrong to do that? Did God really say that? And I think Jesus was able to go beyond the subtlety of that temptation uh, to see what the bigger issues um, were involved. And as such, I think that's why he has got the capacity to understand us. And I think in also there is a deeper, much more deeper and complex theological issue here is as, 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 as a divine representative human being, I think he has the capacity to understand us in a way that another human being can't. So while he he he's not tempted by suffering from dementia or something like mm. that he he perhaps has got that special supernatural insight into what we're going through so that he can more specially understand us so i think yes jesus sympathizes with me empathizes with me understands me because he as a human being has experienced in a general form what it's like to be tempted to be true 
or untrue to God. And he, as you say, was able to go beyond the immediate temptation to see what the deeper issues were, and I think invites us to do likewise. But there was a very real prospect, surely, for the plan of salvation to work that that he could blow it. That he could fall, that that, that oh, he might yes. say yes, that that the that the injustice of the world could be solved with an immediate miracle to my own ends. Oh yes, I, I mean some some Christians debate this and they say, oh no, Jesus couldn't possibly have uh, succumbed in the desert or in the Garden of Gethsemane for that matter. Yeah. Oh yes, he could have, uh, because otherwise temptation loses its value. If 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 I'm following a Jesus who couldn't really be tempted, but it was only a little bit of fiction going on here because he was really God. Uh, no, he can't be my great high priest who sympathises with me. He's some sort of cardboard cutout figure who was much higher and above me. Now, I think we have to accept the fact that Jesus, in as it was, as he walked the earth as a human being, even though he was God in human form, that there was a possibility of being untrue to God. Now, we're going into deep theological depths here when we have to argue that because we're saying, well, surely if Jesus truly was the Messiah, he would not have succumbed. Well, yes, and that is so, he did not succumb. But we have to also live with the fact that as a human being, when he was wrestling with Satan in the wilderness or Satan in Gethsemane, which is what he was doing, uh, it was a real wrestle. Yeah, <laughs> it was you- a real decision to be made. David Ray is the author of our LifeWords Daily Devotional and also here in this podcast answering your questions that have been emailed to us, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. To our last question for this podcast, David, changing churches, when's it okay to decide that it's time for a new spiritual family home, for the want of a better term. Yes, it's a, it's it's a tough one. It's a painful thing to do. I've been through this many times. With, well, not that I've changed churches so much, but um, although I have done occasionally because I've been called to other churches, but uh, it's a painful thing to do if you've been part of a church for a while. And and now I'm presuming here that the essence of the question, the spirit of the question, is that this person's not a consumerist church hopper. There are people yes. like that. I'll go to this church one week. Oh, I didn't like the music. Go to this church another week. No, my kids didn't like that. Except that that's consumerism and uh, you know trying to find the perfect church just for me well I'm sorry that's not going to work uh, and I would never advise church shopping like that however there can be a time to change churches and I think many of us have changed churches I, when I was much younger I left my childhood church to go to another one as the result of that my life changed, um, and I think for the better. Not that I was rubbishing my childhood church, yeah. but that change, in fact, was a very, very good change. And I've had people join churches which I've pastored from other churches, and they have um, developed spiritually and developed ministries in such a way that it's absolutely wonderful. So a changing a church can be a good thing. I'm not saying, would never say, uh, look, you must never leave a church. You must stick with it. That, 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 that can be sort of a dogged determination, but it may not be the best thing. Uh, perhaps, look, if, if, if I just suggest a few guidelines here without saying, obviously, to this individual whether it's right or wrong for you to leave, um, obviously there's geographical factors. Yeah. If, you, if, you've, if, if you're going to a church in, in, a, in a city and then you move um, up to uh, Newcastle, well, yes. It's time. Because it's good to be involved in your local community. Even, even more realistically, I think if you are too far away geographically from your church... I think it can weaken your links to the local community, even though we all know that we can drive a reasonable distance to get to a church. Um, there are family factors. Um, this is a controversial thing, but uh, but we have to ask ourselves, do my children fit in somehow? I, I've had yeah. people come to a church where I was pastoring and they loved the church, but their kids didn't have a peer group there. 
And so they said, well, what do we do? I said, well, it, it, it is important that your kids have a peer group. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think you should be following your kids around all the time, but I think uh, family factors do come in uh, and it's important for your kids to grow up in a peer group. Um, and so it, that may be one reason why you leave a church. Doctrinal issues. Um, is the faith being adequately proclaimed and practised? I mean, are there sticking points that mean I can't really go along with things? You see, I, I, I would hate it if people just left the church because they disagreed with one thing the preacher said or one thing a group leader said. But there are some significant doctrinal issues for some people, and yeah. they'll differ from one person to another. Um, there are certain, I won't go into them now because it's not my place to do so, but but there are certain doctrinal issues that would cause me to not want to be part of some churches but be part of, of another instead. Not that I would rubbish that church, but i just say, no, this is an important issue uh, and, and, and I, I, I can't really go along with certain things in this particular church. Um, strategic issues. Um, I had a situation where I was again pastoring a church where a young man said, I've got a passion for inner city urban ministry. Well, we were out in the outer suburbs. <laughs> so I thought, good luck to you. God yeah. bless you. You, you, you. you go along there. Or someone might have a particular passion for a ministry to a particular ethnic group. And we might say, well, no, we're not involved in that. But you find a church that is and, and you go along with that. Um, Relational issues. Now, this, this is a this is a tricky one, mm. but but do I belong after giving it a fair trial? I reckon if you've given the church a few months and you're still not forming relationships, people are still not talking to you. Um, it's you seem to be frozen out. Uh, it could be that you you say, well, look, I'm sorry, this this church is not really uh, um, this church is not providing that um, authentic relationship. You see, an unfriendly, unwelcoming church is not a good place to be. If I'd been along to a church a few times and I was simply not welcomed, um, I'd leave. Not because uh, I mean the preaching might be wonderful and the music might be terrific, but church has got to be a place of relationship and I think an unfriendly unwelcoming church uh, denies that um, so I think those would be um, reasons why I would leave but each in, in, embedded in each of those are issues geography how far is too far Doc, doctrine as I've said is that issue frightfully important or can I live with it? Yes, I can live with the fact that this minister um, is strongly Calvinist in his theology and I'm not because the youth group's fantastic for my kids. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of um, factors. David, where do we draw the line between um, selfish introspection, how I'm feeling about a process versus the, the truth of a church, for instance? How do we know when this becomes all about me and that, and that I'm deciding what's right for me when surely faith is about something more than my own needs and sure. yet it still needs to draw from that capacity for us sure. to, to be aware of our own spiritual world. Look, that's a tough one. Um, uh, there's, there's two opposite areas you can go to here. Some people say churches, I go to church simply in order to give. It's not about me. It's not about meeting my needs. Um, I think that's wrong um, because... It's wrong for this reason, because people then come on to say, oh, it's all about me ministering to others, me serving others, not about people ministering to me. Problem. I will not be able to sustain a ministry to others if I am running spiritually dry myself. Yeah. So I have got to receive in order to give. Some pastors, I think, are guilty of saying to people, you don't come to church in order to receive, you come to church in order to give. I challenge that. You come to church to receive in order to give. So I think you have to reflect on the fact, if you are coming to a church simply to receive, I think that's a problem. 
Um, but then again, if you come to a church and, as it were, in a spirit of, I think, wrongful sacrifice, say, I am just going to put up with this this church which is dysfunctional on so many levels because I want to give to people, then my problem is that, well, what are you receiving from that church um, that, that, that you can give to others? As a pastor teacher of a church, it is, I would say to the church, it's my job or one of my jobs to give to you to give, 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 so that you can give to others, not to simply satisfy and pander to your own selfish needs and so on. But there is nothing wrong with coming to church saying, I want to get something out of this church gathering. And people seem to say, oh, that's all consumerism. No, it's not. We, because the church, the, the Bible says when we meet together, we are to encourage one another. We are to bless and exhort one another. We are to comfort one another. We are to encourage one another. All these sorts of things. And if I'm not getting that systematically, I can never get it perfectly. But if I'm not getting that systematically, well, I can't just be say, oh, well, it's not about me anyway. <laughs> yes, it is. It is about you yeah. because you are the one who is there to give to others. But unless you are being given to, you're not going to be able to do the latter. David Ray, thanks as always for your willingness to field a quiver of questions like you have this week. We'll do it again very soon. As always, you can have your questions answered with our LifeWords Q&A podcasts. Simply email your question to us, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. Thank you.